fair use is simply a doctrine that was created by the courts to permit the use of some work without permission in circumstances when the use furthers the purpose of copyright. So essentially, fair use is a defense against infringement or an exception to the rule that all unauthorized uses are infringement. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello and welcome to the episode seven of the second season. On this episode, we have two guests and we're going to talk about copyright, where it is, where it should be and what is coming. Let's welcome our guests. I'm Michelle Bogri. I'm uh, American. And my profession uh, right now, I'm a professor emerita from Parsons School of Design and uh, a writer and a documentary photographer, a copyright lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Nancy Wolf. I'm also American nationality. We will not disclose the age. Uh, I'm a <laughs> partner at uh, intellectual entertainment law firm. Cowan Debates, Abrams and Shepard. I am also a copyright lawyer. Thank you, Nancy and Michelle. Michelle, can you tell us about your professional background, how you came from the creative world and then you went into law school and finally became this hybrid artist and a lawyer? Yeah, I mean, I always like to introduce myself as a Renaissance woman in an age that our preferences, speciality. But um, I was originally a photojournalist. I had a career in newspapers. Uh, my first job actually was at the Miami News. And then I did some corporate communications work where I would write. I was always wanted to write and photograph. Uh, I became the chair of the photography department at Parsons School of Design in 1995, I think. And I was the chair there for 14 years. And while I was chair, I used to Uh, look across the street at uh, Cardozo uh, School of Law and thinking that one of the most important things for artists and designers in the 21st century was going to be intellectual property and how we art schools were not teaching any of it. So I had this idea that I could just run across the street and go to law school while I was running the photography department. And that's what I did. And when I graduated, I really didn't intend to quit Uh, academia or photography, but I wanted to bring law into the academy. So I uh, developed a, a course, a 15-week copyright course for artists and designers, taught that for several years. Um, I left Parsons. And in the meantime, I was also writing books. This I've written four books, uh, uh, two on documentary photography, one on photo education, and then this wonderful book that Nancy and I just finished, uh, Copyright and Creativity in the 21st Century. Uh, so I left Parsons in 2019 to work on another book uh, and my own project. So I'm kind of, I write about copyright, I take pictures, I write about other things. So that's my hybrid career. Tell us about you, Nancy. How do you decided to become a lawyer and why you specialize in intellectual property? Unlike Michelle, I really would have loved to have been an artist, but unfortunately there wasn't any talent. The one thing I sure I wasn't going to be was a lawyer because my father was a lawyer. <laughs> Somehow I ended up uh, graduating college and I didn't really have a direction since I wasn't you know, great at art or anything like that. And my father convinced me to go to law school. And my favorite course was copyright. Um, at the time I graduated, IP wasn't as in demand. And so I got a job at a mid-sized law firm doing 
what I realized um, like about day two I hated, which was corporate law and securities. Um, and I was like ready to quit law altogether and go back to school to maybe be like a, a graphic designer or something. And I met a photographer who uh, was also taking this aptitude course I was taking to try to figure out what I really should be doing. And he said, why don't you meet uh, this woman, Jane Kinney, who's the president of this photo agency called Photo Researchers. I know that they have a lawyer and maybe he could use some help. So I went there and I met a lawyer named Bob Cavallo who started photography law. And so I just started working for him and, you know, learned the whole practice. And when things shifted from losing, you know, valuable little transparencies to copyright, that was just my passion and love. And I ended up then starting a firm with a friend of mine that I met as an adversary doing a case, Helene Godin. And we had our own firm for a while uh, until she went in-house. And I joined, uh, I don't know, more than 15 years ago, probably this entertainment law group, uh, Cowan Debates, Abrams and Shepard. And I've been there and I'm a partner there. We have offices in Los Angeles and uh, Beverly Hills and New York. And so my practice is varied. It's um, digital media, it's dispute resolution, documentary filmmakers review their films for clearances. And uh, I represent a trade association of all the stock image libraries. So I sort of know all the different kind of legal issues that are in visual images. Um, And that's how I uh, met Michelle. Uh, What led you to write the book together? So you meet both great interesting backgrounds and how the idea came. What came to your mind when you say, we need to write this book. We need to send this message across. Well, so the book um, was actually my initiative. I had just finished two books for Rutledge. One was uh, called Photography as Activism, which I'm actually currently doing a second edition of. And the other one was a a book on photography education. And they have a series what they call Companion. So it's the idea is to get industry professionals or academics to write essays about really contemporary topics. And most of the things they do were visual. But my publisher, because she knew I was a lawyer or had gone to law school, said, you know, what about doing something on copyright? I said, oh, that would be a fabulous idea. We would, if we could write it for the design artists and designers, the kind of kids I teach who are working pushing the envelope and doing the like the innovative things in the the 21st century. So we came up with the uh, title Copyright and Creativity in the 21st Century. But I did not want to do the book alone. And so I thought of Nancy and I thought I thought of Nancy for a while. I thought, oh, but she's going to be too busy. But but I'll ask her anyway. She's probably going to say no. And she said yes. (laughs) And that's how we sort of crafted the book and 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 worked together on it. I was so grateful because I was just sure she was going to say, oh, I can't do something like that. I'm so busy. So um, and we worked uh, as it was and it was a wonderful experience for me. Fun. Right. I and only, why did you say yes, Nancy? <laughs> I think I just say yes to anything that sounds interesting and then think about it later. But uh, I had done a book in about 2005, which was a, a handbook for photographers, which was sort of explaining all the areas that you would need to know sort of in plain English and explaining cases. And because I do a lot of, of education and training for clients as well as for the stock photo industry, um, I really enjoy educating about the law and speaking to people about it in plain English. And I think it was Nancy's book, because uh, I had seen that and, and how it was actually written 
and accessible to the layperson, which was one of the reasons I was hoping Nancy would say yes. And the rest is history. Right. <laughs> and, and the good thing about this book is that we did not write all the essays. Our job was uh-huh. to write part of the book and use people we knew and our connections to, you know, find thought leaders and people we thought would have an interesting point of view to write essays. And I so think ha- it was just it was interesting Though we know a lot of people in common. We had some slightly different areas of expertise, and that's how we got as many varied uh, people in you know, uh, fields as a diverse as AI or music or um, that we could tap into our our various networks to get both lawyers, but also some practitioners, because one of the things I wanted to do in the book was have interviews with people who are actually the users of copyright, the copyright creators, but ones that I knew were very involved in in sort of protecting their rights. So we we have interviews and things like that in the book, not just essays. But yeah, that's what I think that makes it so interesting because it's not the typical copyright or law book. You have essays, you have interviews, um, and you have uh, a lot of positions regarding where the copyright is going and how it has been evolving in in the different areas. So um, when you were first deciding or planning this book, you started to imagine what would you like to put into to include in the book? And if there's something that you wish you have included that you couldn't or uh, didn't have the, the time or, or didn't find the person to um, to include it. We didn't have the people in mind first. We had a table of contents like what what kinds of essays. And part of that was trying to figure out interesting titles for the essays. We sort of structured it uh, along the ways that copyright law structured visual arts, music. Then we looked at the essay titles, changed some of them, uh, and then thought about who might we know that would write this. And there were a few essays, I honestly can't remember what they were, I'd have to go back, that we actually dropped because we really couldn't find the perfect person or the someone said yes and then got busy and the book was already going to be long enough. Um, but not really. I think we've covered... I think we covered most of the things I wanted to cover. And and some of the people who we asked to write essays asked to sort of modify the point of the essay or take something at a little different angle. So we were a bit flexible with uh, the people we asked as well. Well, yes, um, you have great titles. Uh, I, I can give you that. It's they're, they're usually quite. Uh, let me see if I can find some. So you have the, is a picture really worth more than a thousand words? The scope of copyright protection for fictional character. I mean, this kind of um, titles, they're they're very catchy. So um, I really can see that you really thought into it and to make the audience or the reader curious. And Some of those titles were actually suggested by the authors. And, and we liked that. We also allowed people, <laughs> in addition to being flexible with what they could write about if they wanted to propose a a different title. We were quite amiable to that. Yes. And talking about the content of the book, um, which are the three most common misconceptions about copyright that you have encountered or did you talk about in your book? I think the scope of copyright would be one misconception. There are so many uh, particularly creative people who don't understand the differences in intellectual property. And they'll say, you know, can I protect my idea? Or I have this great name, you know, I really want to copyright it, or I've invented something. So the difference between what's copyright, what's trademark, and the boundaries of copyright, because it doesn't protect everything that is creative. And I think a good example of that is a lot of very uh, conceptual art, which is very avant-garde, 
because it may not be fixed or it may be very conceptual and just represent an idea that that could be very hard to protect. And I don't know if Michelle wants to chime in with another one. Well, I think the, the, the one of the common misperceptions and see, we covered a lot of this in our we wrote we decided it in addition to the essays that we would write a, an introductory chapter called Copyright Basics that to put everybody on the same page. So if you don't know anything about copyright, you can start with that. And then the essays make more sense because they reference uh, knowledge that they think people have. So one of the common misconceptions that students have or, or even professionals is you have to register your work to have a copyright and you don't. You have a copyright as soon as you know, the expression of the idea is fixed in a uh, tangible medium. So that's one of the main misconceptions. There are many reasons you should register, of course, which we explain in the book. But uh, yeah, you don't have to do anything except mm-hmm. fix the expression of your idea in a tangible medium. And then another one I get all the time is I don't think people understand what public domain is, that there is this idea that if something's public, it's in the public domain. So <laughs> you find something on Google, it's public because it's in the public domain or there's a meme that everywhere it's uh, public. So the uh, there's a lot of words in copyright that are similar to words that you would use like public domain or um, publish that really have very defined terms. And it's uh, confusing. Yeah, just yes. on the Internet, it doesn't mean you can use it for free. Right. People um, confuse um, accessibility with uh, public domain or without rights. They say, well, I found it on this website, so it means that I can use it. The meme, um, the meme, it's something that you often get this idea that anyone can use it. And then you have brands using them for commercial use for the products. And then they, they encounter problems because they realize that it's not public domain just because it's in a public platform. The, the burning so, from the inauguration. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. I think that was the <laughs> highlight. Those were very funny though. Yeah. Funny. yeah. Yeah. And, and I've never seen a meme used so much. I don't know if you have that impression. Like it, it was everywhere. And, and it turns out uh, that some of the commercial uses that license that all the money was donated, I think, to the American Meals on Wheels. So uh, uh, that's nice. That's nice. They're using they're using the Internet power for good. Right. <laughs> Um, so talking about uh, some specific topics on, on the book about fictional characters, what is a fictional character and can it be protected under copyright? Is there a difference between a fictional character from a book, a novel and a fictional character, for example, a comic or um, a series or, or a TV show? A fictional character, as it says, is a character of the imagination. That's the characteristics, the attributes, the personality, the activities the character does is all from the author's creation. And so you can have literary characters that are fictional as well as visual characters, whether it's a comic book or a, you know, live, you know, action TV or television show. Now, if a character has enough details, they can be protected, whether they're literary or not literary. Uh, but there are some differences. So when you have a literary character, the attributes that are described in words can be protected and you can have sort of what I would sort of call a full character where there's so many details. It's a main character 
of a novel and particularly if there's a series. So you might have some of these detective novels where the same character goes over and over and over, or there's also some teen books where you'd have the same character repeat themselves. So when you have a character that even though you can't visualize, but you almost can, I mean, everyone probably draw them differently. They saw them, but they're recognized by how they're described in their looks and what they do every day, where they live and, you know, the kind of adventures they have um, that can be protected. What are not protected are sort of what they call stock characters. They could it just it's a general idea that people can do in, in a different way. Like if someone has a best friend, you can't protect. Oh, so and so's best friend. Um, they have to have details that really make them unique with a visual character. Instead of imagining with words what someone looks like, you actually see them. So it's a little easier to protect a a visual character because you have the illustration. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that there can only be one superhero or, you know, one, you know, one ghost or what, whatever it is. But they have to be drawn in a way that's not substantially similar. And it also is helpful if something's in a series and is used repeated over and over. Because then the character sort of develops a lot more of its own life and, and adventures and, and, and events. So it's not just reduced to a concept or, you know, everyone, you know, there's generic stock characters that no one could own. Those would really be how you would differentiate like the main central character to the stock. So it's the fictional character in order to be protected or to aspire for protection will have to be identifiable. That's Correct. the characteristics or something in in the in the persona then the author created. It's something that resonates with the public and the public can easily identify it in some in some other scenario that is not outside the normal one. For example, Romeo and Juliet, the idea of, of, you know, two lovers from the wrong side of the track can be done over and over again with different characters from different time periods, different cities, different places. Um, and the only way what what would be protected would be the particular character living in a particular time in a particular city with a particular community with lots of details written about. Uh, it doesn't mean that no one else can have a story about two lovers from the wrong side of town in a different time period, city, state, different names. Um, it's the details surround that one particular character that that's protected. You, they have to be recognizable. Yes, they're fictional. Makes sense. And we all have a lot of fictional characters that we grew up with that uh, we can easily identify even by the voice or some sound that they make. Uh, usually uh, we can immediately go back and be a kid again, thinking about this character. That's the beauty of creation and the link that it makes with them, the creation and the public and the fans. So it's that you can instantly recognize the character. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Um, so moving on to something we already talked a bit about, uh, social media. Do we own what we post on social media or is it belongs to the to the platform or it belongs to both of us? Um, do we relinquish the rights when we do a post or is there something that we can do before in order to secure um, the, the copyright of, of the content that we are posting on social media? Um, what are your thoughts on this? 
It's very interesting. We have a wonderful essay in our book uh, by Joseph Bio, Social Media, Use It and Lose It. Um, so I think that the question is, do we own it? Sure. It's you have the copyright. The question is, can you protect it? And I think that's where people get confused. Just because you post it doesn't mean you 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 have transferred your copyright, but it is an, a reality that someone is going to probably download it and do something with it. So the question is, how do you what can you do to protect your work or what is the best way you can protect your work if you post it? But anyone who is posting on social media is taking the risk that is so, someone is going to appropriate their work. How much? What can you do about it? When can you sue? Those are questions that are actually covered fairly, um, fairly well by uh, Joseph Bile in the book. So, yes, you own it. But does that mean that you can stop someone from downloading it who thinks it because you posted it? It's for free. No, you can't. I mean, just there's ways you can code your website and all that kind of stuff. But Nancy, do you want to sort of add some more? What I would add is when you post to social media, you are also agreeing to the terms and service of the various platforms, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you are giving the platform the rights. And it's always a non-exclusive right, but they have rights that will include use generally within the platform, but sometimes it could be even broader. Uh, And these are usually non-negotiable terms. You just click on it. Uh, So if you read platform terms of services, you're really granting the platform very broad, non-exclusive rights. And because most platforms are meant for sharing and sharing within the the platform. Um, you have to you know, look at those terms and services. And some of them will allow your uh, post to be private or public. And when you choose the public post, you agree to a lot more use. You know, a lot of platforms have APIs that allow sharing and embedding. And you have to really understand what you're agreeing to. When you upload, you choose private or public. Yeah. And in the essay, uh, Joseph talks about a case with a photographer, Stephanie Sinclair, who lost. And one of the things that the the case involved was that exactly right. Are you posting it as a public or are you posting it as private? But of course, the whole point of for photographers, at least of using Instagram is so people see your work. So if you you're kind of so if you make it private, you there's almost no point in posting it. So that's the, that's this balance, this 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 balancing act. Uh, of how people are getting around also uh, rather than downloading their embedding or their linking, but it, it it ends up being the same kind of misappropriation. So, you know, it, it is something I think that we're going to continue to see litigated and sorted out in the 21st century as we post and share more and more work. And it's not so much, do you care whether, you know, if someone sends it to a friend, it's when uh, a commercial entity deliberately tries to get around your copyright by uh, engaging with something you've posted online in a way that that does tacitly protect them. Yeah, because um, there's a difference between being the owner of the content and allowing someone else to make use of that content. That's what we do when we join a platform. We, as you mentioned, Nancy and Michelle, we click on the acceptance of the terms uh, of, of the platform and we give away the rights of everything that we make, everything that we post on the platform. And we can still assert the ownership of our content, but that doesn't mean that they're not free to use how they see fit. Right. And you're not giving everything away. It's usually uses within the terms of the platform. And it's non-exclusive rights. So you still have your rights, but you've allowed the work to be shared a lot more broadly. And um, a lot of times 
it, you know, it escapes the platform itself. And it's also very hard to really like monitor uses. Once something goes viral, it really goes all over. And <laughs> yes. It's evidenced by the Bernie Sanders and right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. You, you cannot really control that. And I will also say that, it, you know, although almost none of us do it hardly ever, when you click, I've read the terms and conditions, you ought to at least skim them, you know, you ought to at least try to read them. Or as he puts it in his essay, great lies told by good t- people. Yes, I've read the terms and conditions. <laughs> okay. And and the platforms are designed for sharing. So they mm-hmm. they want everyone to share content. Um, it's sort of the point of it. Um, yeah, they, they want engagement. That's yeah. the idea. Right. <laughs> Moving on to a different topic, uh, but still very trendy. It's the sampling of music. First, what is sampling? And second, if it is a violation or not of copyright. Okay, so um, first of all, sampling is simply the reuse of a portion of a, re- of, a, of a sound recording and another recording. It is very common in rap and hip hop music. And some recordings use hundreds of samples of just a few seconds each. Some use, you know, a minute. So it's what makes it problematic in copyright law is if it's unauthorized use was originally. But I'm going to say that the, the, the short answer to the question is sampling infringement is yes. Sampling is infringement if it's unauthorized. If you haven't gotten permission from the owner of the recording to use their music, it's infringement. Any unauthorized use of copyrighted material is infringement. Now, the question is, what what are the penalties for that? The, the problem is, and actually, we one of the very, very interesting essays in the book by um, law professor Peter Manel, who uh, discusses this at length, is that originally the early cases, the courts didn't consider anything along fair use. They simply said, if you have used unauthorized material, it's infringement. The first litigated case was actually for a rap star, Bismarck's song, Alone Again. He had sampled an Irish pop singer, Gilbert O'Sullivan's hit song, Home Again. Friends naturally. Um, and the, they didn't, the case didn't even consider fair use. It just said unauthorized, it's infringement, and Bismarcky had to pay. Now, subsequent cases started to look at, well, how much was used? Um, and was it de minimis, which is just a legal term meaning uh, it's so it's so small as to be insignificant. But the early cases, again, going against the remix artist said de minimis doesn't apply in music. It doesn't matter how much you use. It's it's unauthorized. It's infringement. Now, recently, since around 2006, cases have actually started to or courts have started to make more of a fair use analysis. And for non-lawyers, fair use is simply a doctrine that was created by the courts to permit the use of some work without permission in circumstances when the use furthers the purpose of copyright. So essentially, fair use is a defense against infringement or an exception to the rule that all unauthorized uses are infringement. So a lot of uh, people in the profession think that this analysis should have been made and had it been made at the very first cases, hip hop and rap stars wouldn't have had such a problem um, with, with, with sampling. So more recent cases are actually considering the fair use, the transformative nature of the sample and or whether it's de minimis or not. But, but by, by all means, not all. 
court. So what has actually happened in music is, is people get permission or they pay. But Peter Manel in, introduces a really interesting idea, which he calls um, a compulsor, a remix compulsory license, which would be a, a method set up and monitored by the copyright office. Hip hop artists would say, I'm using these 12 samples. Uh, he would say how much each sample was. And there would be some kind of statutory um, algorithm to decide how much the original owner should get paid and, and how much uh, how, how, how the, the money would be divided. But it, it would operate like a statutory license does, which is that you don't actually have to get the permission of the artist. You simply have to pay the remix licensing fee. Now, this is just an idea that he has. Um, so that's kind of the what's going on in in music and in sampling. Um, he makes the point that it's sampling is a is a creative, innovative kind of music and copyright law in this instance is being used to to stifle that. But we have to find some balance between compensating the original uh, creators, but also allowing the remix artists to create a new genre of music. Well, that sounds like a very practical approach. Do you think it's feasible? Uh, would you think that the artists would agree to this kind of uh, approach? Well, I'm not sure. And Nancy, you, you, you can sort of probably speak more uh uh, speak to this. I don't know that if Congress created a remixed uh, compulsory license, which is just along the model of the statutory license, which music has, artists don't have to agree. I mean, they might go and lobby Congress not to pass the law, but if it were passed, it would become um, just like statutory licensing is. You you can't stop someone from doing a cover if they've paid the proper statutory license, as long as it's not like an advertising agency or something like that, that falls into a completely different area. So yeah, I mean, it, it could work now. Would it ever get through Congress? Who knows? Yeah, it, it takes a long time to change copyright law and uh, change comes slowly. We're, copyright is now being looked at parts of the act that were created 20 years ago for the Internet, uh, which is the safe harbors for Internet service providers. But it could take years for anything to change about that. Copyright small claims was enacted the end of December. Um, and I think uh, the industry had been working on that for about 14 years. So um, copyright law, it takes a little while to catch up to how people are using things. The mashup area really is interesting because some of the mashups just use so many different songs. It would be cost prohibitive in time and money to try to get licenses from all the different artists. Um, and at the end, you really don't have a work that replaces the original work. It really is a new work. And so that's the argument that, you know, why it should fall under fair use, because fair use is really the escape valve in our Copyright Act for free speech. Um, mm -hmm. It's when you can use something without having to ask permission. And often that's for like parodies when someone would always say no for criticism, for commentary. And what you're really doing is sort of creating something else of value without harming the underlying work. And it's interesting why um, the very that first Bismarcky case, why fair use didn't even come up. You know, but it's Kevin Duffy. The first yeah. line of the the first line of the case was not the Copyright <laughs> Act, but thou shalt not steal. Yeah. And you knew they were going down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but that so so Manel's idea of this remix compulsory license would solve actually addresses the fact that if I've got 100 samples, I can't possibly it's Im almost impossible to get permission or even to sort of negotiate all those licenses. So you would just send that off to the copyright office and they would allocate how much each 
how much sample and what 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 was the whatever the statutory rate is. That's how much the the content creators would get. I mean, it actually is a it, it actually is an interesting idea and fall, follows a lot of the ways that music functions or music law functions. But um, it's just an idea at this point. And music yeah. is one of the hardest areas to get permission from because there could be many copyright owners of one particular item of music. You could have different writers, you can have uh, of music, different lyrics, and then the master recording will be owned by somebody else. It is a very complicated area to get clearances. It takes a long time. So, you know, one song could require multiple clearances. Yeah, that's something that most people also don't necessarily know, that people often believe that it's either owned by the label and that's it, or by the the composer or or the artist who actually singing the song. And sometimes it's way more complex than that. It's interesting because sampling from what I'm getting from you, it it's, should be regarded as they're taking something that is already exist and making something new of it. And truly, that's you know the fair use doctrine. That that's the idea behind the fair use doctrine. You know, if the work is transformative, if it uses it in a completely new and different way. And it doesn't, and more importantly, it doesn't harm the original work. So, you know, if an artist has sampled three seconds of a song, that's not going to impact the sale of the original work. But it's um, the problem, of course, with fair use is fair use being a defense against infringement. You have to actually have a case and decide there is infringement. So it's a very expensive uh, doctrine, although it, mm-hmm. it, it functions. So this idea of a remix compulsory license would solve that. It wouldn't even... It wouldn't have to go to court first for infringement determined. And then you make the, the defense that it's actually fair use. Yeah, that would be ideal. For the last question, where do you see copyright going? Which changes are you hoping will happen in, in the near future? And which changes do you think are going to happen right now has, that should happen right now or should, have, or should already have happened because of the reality that we're living in? One change that happened since we wrote the book is the CASE Act, which is a copyright small claims court within the Copyright Office. And why that is so important is so many creators are just left out of the copyright system because federal court is so expensive. And the type of infringements that happen online are typically infringements that may not have significant value in terms of litigation, but have significant value to an artist because it's essentially they're losing licensing and earning income. So if you're a musician and someone's always, you know, downloading your song without getting paid, you're losing license fees, which you count on for a living. If you're a photographer and someone's always downloading your picture and not licensing it from you, you're losing income Uh, and an illustrator and, and similarly. And if that happens enough time and all the time, all of a sudden you have no income string, but each individual use maybe a few thousand dollars or even a few hundred dollars. And an index number to go to federal court is $400 and hiring a lawyer. So, and if you haven't had a registration before the infringing act, you are not even entitled to even ask for attorney's fees and you're you're not entitled to statutory damages. So the economics of enforcing your copyright become impossible. And so if you really don't have a way to enforce your rights, it really diminishes what rights you have. So individual artists have been 
uh, asking to have a copyright small claims court for some time because of the way our constitution is structured. It has to be voluntary. So the Copyright Office did a study and wrote an act, and it really got great bipartisan support. It went through the the House Judiciary Committee and got voted on the House with almost unanimous consent. Uh, And then it kind of got stuck in the Senate for a really long time because one senator was holding up the bill, um, a senator who was was looking after the interest of the libraries. Well, it got uh, attached to the aid bill that was at the end of the year. And there was an exception that archives and libraries can have an automatic opt out. Um, and, And the bill got passed. So the Copyright Office this year will be implementing a copyright small claims court. They'll be hiring three of these claim judges and other staff. And we'll see how this works. I mean, you know, there's people say no one will use it and there's others that think it will be flooded. But it's really exciting to see that there actually is a change that's happening. Um, And at the same time, the whole Copyright Office is attempting to be modernized because its systems are really, really um, from the last century. And so they're they're really uh, hoping to see things like registration become easier and a lot more that can be done with APIs and working with other companies, but they really need to get their technology back end up to date. And I don't know if Michelle wants to take on some other issues. There's so many things that we could change with copyright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, um, and it's interesting because the authors, uh, I guess, because, you know, we're talking the title of the book, Copyright and Creativity in the 21st Century, addressed a lot of um, issues that are not resolved. Uh, so among among those, let's talk even just simply fair use. How is fair use going to function? And we like to say the remix compulsory license. Um, fair use seems to, depending upon what side you're on, is either stifling creativity or it's protecting um, artists. So fair use needs to be looked at. Um, what role will internet service providers play uh, to ensure the economic incentives provided to authors under copyright remain. I mean, for example, uh, one of the, when a couple of our essays talks, talk about book authors and piracy and how, you know, the sites that allow you to sell books and, re- and resell books and uh, pirate books, h- h- how do we protect authors? How do we, you know, in the economic viability of being an author and a publisher, um, the collective licensing models, both which would not just apply to music, but could also apply to authors who face piracy or artists who are using uh, appropriated worker photographers whose works, as Nancy said, under the Case Act are constantly being, I mean, maybe there was, should be a license to use for a blogger to use a picture. It might not be a lot of money, but it, but a lot of those uses would, would generate a revenue stream for um, photographers. So it's basically like the internet. How do we address how creators are, are generally harmed without hampering the viability and the possibilities of the internet? Also, as Nancy mentioned a little earlier, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the Copyright, Copyright Office finally issued an analysis of that. How do we address protecting ISPs, you know, for from damages for work that's posted by infringing work that's posted by users, but also protect users from, you know, having their works infringed? And finally, AI, probably the most interesting area of copyright addressed by a couple of really wonderful writers in our book. You know, how are we going to address who owns work that's created by a machine or a drone? 
how are we going to um, how will the copyright office decide who owns the copyright and or who might be liable for damages? Is it the person who creates the AI? Is it the AI? Is it the person who runs the computer? Um, How are we going to um, uh, address copyright ownership and revenue streams for work that are we going to share it between the guy, the, the, the person who wrote the AI and the author. So AI is a very, is I think um, um, probably an area that that is going to continue to develop uh, and be, you know, sort of transformed by the courts. Uh, yeah, I'd agree. That's really interesting. And I've even had um, someone come up to me recently where and their entire Seven, almost 70,000 files were taken by a university lab for machine learning for AI. And that, you know, should that be licensed? Uh, certainly they didn't give permission. Um, so it's, it's really, those questions are really unanswered and really interesting. And then the question I've gotten every day this week is sort of the convergence of art and technology, which is the NFTs. Everyone I know now wants to sell their work of art with an NFT. I've got an agency agreement to review with an NFT. That is one thing we never even thought about to write about. I mean, all you need is one work of art to sell for 60 something million dollars and everyone (laughs) wants to sell their work with it. Or Bitcoin anyway. Or Bitcoin, right. So what the underlying artists, I think, are concerned with with copyright, it was always supposed to be uh, the purpose of copyright in our constitution is to encourage creativity and really encourage that we have sort of a working class of authors and creators. And it seems like the Internet has almost made that more difficult for you to make a living as an artist, a creator, just because of the way works can be so freely shared and used and how difficult it is to enforce the almost impossibility of keeping track of infringing works and having them taken down. It's looked at as such a great way of democratizing everything and everyone can be a publisher. But I think that in some ways, the uh, the delivery services, the platforms have gained the most benefit and the individual creators have not. And that's what the Copyright Office was looking at with balancing the Digital Mill and Copyright Act um, to sort of ensure that, you know, we have professional authors, artists and creators. Yeah, I think that I mean, the, the, the whole the whole question for the 21st century is can a law written for, you know, like the 19th century written for the printed page, written for the small amount of reproduction that happened? H- how does that adapt to you know, infinite reproduction, perfect reproductions, um, the kinds of things that the, the digital technology allows and then the Internet further allows, like how how can the law adapt to that? And it's trying. I mean, Nancy points out we didn't write about NFTs. And right when the book went to press, I think we actually got to change, you know, we're, we're publishers. The Case Act was passed. There's all these things that we knew were like coming, like at what point? And this book, you know, when you're writing a book about the future or future things are like, oh, my God, no, stop. Our publishers are probably like, no, you just have to, like, publish the book. Um, (laughs) You have to let it go. (laughs) You have to let it go because there's always going to, you know, be something that's just about to happen. Or even our authors Mm -hmm. who wrote about cases that were pending or or appeals were pending 
You know, oh my God, this just got solved. Can I change three lines? You know, while we were in galleys. And in a couple of cases we did because it was so important. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was one of the most com- complicated parts about the book. <laughs> But is it possible to make copyrights with neutrality to technology? So whatever comes, it would still be relevant. Or do you think we will forever need to readapt after the changes happen? That's a, a great question because when they substantially revised the Copyright Act, which ended up uh, being enacted in 1978, the act before that was 1909, they thought we have this done. We're technology neutral and we won't have to change anything. And then the Internet exploded and we ended up with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, which was written when the Internet was just starting and no one wanted to impinge on on this new amazing you know world this digital world uh, and so now you know we're looking back at 20 years and thinking well you know maybe maybe there needs to be some adjustments um you know maybe the scales have tipped too far in one favor and uh, of the uh, internet service providers and maybe and uh, tip too far away from from authors and and how do we work on it so that they're these incentives that were promised under the constitution survive. So yeah, where I think we'll probably have to keep looking under the hood. I, I think it's hard because we don't even know what, the, what tech, what problems technology is going to create. And AI is a perfect example. Who's an author mm-hmm. in, in an AI created piece, the machine, the, the person who wrote the code, you know, the person who typed, I mean, who's the author. So things that seemed obvious and common are now not so obvious and common because of a technology that we didn't anticipate 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, PA has been around for a while, but so it, I think it, I think it would be almost impossible to make a law that's technology neutral because we don't know what questions technology is going to raise for basic things like author content. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the things that copyright is based on user, you know, I mean, like drone technology. Yeah. Who Yeah, someone needs to operate the drone and operate the yeah. camera on the drone. And um, I know, you know, a lot of professional photographers use drones. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. There's others mm-hmm. and they get amazing pictures you would never find somewhere else. Yeah, but what yeah. if um, I mean, that drone is controlled by the AI and it's not a photographer taking the decision exactly. when to make the shot? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That is an algorithm now based on mm-hmm. right. light and dark and shadows or whatever. Like, exactly. So I, AI is the area that. But so AI kind of points out how it's almost impossible to, to write a law to anticipate technology. But the question is, what's going to be the next thing after AI? Well, Nancy, Michelle, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. I do recommend everyone to look for the book. It's titled The Rootless Companion to Copyright and Creativity in the 21st Century. I truly recommend this book, not only for lawyers, but for everyone who is creating or has a creative passion. Uh, you will find this uh, book as a great guide to whatever you need or whatever question you do have on copyright. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Goodbye from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? 
please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.